Thank you, Liz, and good morning again to you all, ZPC. It is good to be here with you this morning. You know, we've been talking uh, over the last, oh, I don't know, several months about this kind of tapestry of God's kingdom. And one of the things I love about today's service is that we get to hear from Etzer and Maggie, and we're reminded of this reality, you know, that the tapestry of God's kingdom is about much more than what's going on right here, uh, but is about what is going on across the globe. And so it is a gift to have you all here with us. And then, of course, we're also reminded of the fact um, of those generations who are coming uh, next and the importance uh, of them as well. You know, you guys know probably uh, as well as I do the stunning uh, research about how uh, the next generations as they go on the decrease in, uh, in their faith and attendance of church. And as I was uh, sitting there listening today um, to um, all of these uh, musicians who were singing or playing, uh, I was reminded of the reality that we can either gripe and complain about that, or we can decide that we want to be a place that helps to cultivate and create space for our younger people to be able to come here and be able to sing aloud that there is nothing like Jesus. And each of us have that decision, whether or not we want to just bemoan and gripe and whine about these younger generations, or if we wanna be able to be a space where we are actively cultivating and intentionally longing for our young people to lead us now and in the days to come, and we each have that choice. This is all free. And so it is a gift, it seems to me, as a pastor, and as I oftentimes say, as a father, to be able to be at a place where we can come and gather together, where we can say, you know what? We believe we have much to learn from our older generations, and we certainly do. And at the same time, what we long to do is to be able to invest in our younger generations as well, because all of that is for the glory of the kingdom of God. Amen? All right. Well, with that, I have good good news. We're out of Luke 12. (laughs) The bad news is 13 is not that much better so far. It will look up, but this is a good word, it seems to me, for us today from Luke chapter 13. We remember that Jesus is continuing his march to Jerusalem. And here's what Luke writes. At that very time, there were some present, those in the crowds, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other people living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the man working the vineyard, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. 
sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do give you praise on this morning for the reminder of your kingdom. We thank you for Etzer and Maggie, for their lives, for the work that is going on across the globe. We pray, Lord, that you would always keep us mindful of where you at work, where those who are working for you are suffering, God. And we pray as well, Lord, that you would be with us this morning as we discern what it is that you would have us to hear today. Open our ears and our minds and our hearts to you. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So uh, back in 2011, uh, we uh, decided that it was time for us to leave our first call. Uh, We'd been there about six years in the Chicago area. So on the very last Sunday, um, you know, I preached the final sermon and, and, and there was a kind of a little bit of a lineup there just to bid their final farewells. And so I was kind of just shaking everyone's hand. And as I looked at who was next, it was a guy by the name of Bill. Now, Bill was a very interesting person. And over the years, Bill and I had had very many interesting conversations. He was, uh, he was, just, he was an engineer, uh, and he was just a bit odd. <laughs> I know it's dangerous to do that around here, but it's so much fun. And so I think he went to Purdue as well, but I am not sure about that. I really don't know about that. I just, uh, I have a thought. So anyway, so, uh, so uh, Bill comes up to me and he, he grabs my hand on this beautiful June day and he shakes it with great vigor and he says, Jerry, Feliz Navidad, Feliz Navidad. And I didn't know what to say. I mean, obviously, Feliz Navidad was not exactly what would have been normal at that point. But of course, what else do you say? So I just said, oh, Bill, Feliz Navidad, brother. And, you know, patted him on the shoulder and had him go his way. Uh, uh, Clearly, either Bill didn't know exactly uh, what that meant or Bill just always lived in the Christmas season. I am not sure. But what I was pretty certain of was that his statement at that point didn't really align in the context of of the situation in which we had found ourselves. I oftentimes think about that after having a conversation that I find to be a little bit odd and not really uh, um, in coordination with where we find ourselves. And it's the story that I think about when it comes to this particular passage today. You see, someone in the crowd comes up and wants to share with Jesus this reality, this horrible tragedy that had occurred, that that Pilate had mingled the blood of Galileans with the blood of their sacrifices. What that means is that these Galileans had gone, they were in this very vulnerable moment when they were worshiping, and all of a sudden Pilate came and just slaughtered them. Now, this would not have been a great surprise, quite frankly, to the Jewish people there. Pilate was not known for being uh, overly kind to them. And if you were one of these people around that crowd, you would have expected Jesus to have said one of two things, maybe both things. On the one hand, perhaps he would have simply said, oh, can you believe Pilate? Once again, he slaughters our people. 
Or perhaps you would have expected uh, him to say, oh, these poor Galileans. Can you imagine what this must have been like for them and for their families? This is a grave injustice. We would have expected, they would have expected some great diatribe against these Romans and against um, all of this oppression. And, and, and even if there had been Presbyterians there, they would have been so excited, they would have said an amen to something like that. Because this is exactly what they were looking for. Can you believe this? Jesus. And in the middle of that, Jesus throws out Felice Navidad. Because you see, what he says makes absolutely no sense. All of a sudden, instead of saying something about Pilate or something about these poor Galileans who were slaughtered, Jesus says this, you think that because those Galileans suffered in this way, that they are worse than other Galileans? No, I tell you that unless you repent, you will perish in the same way. And before they can even kind of gather, my guess is what exactly he was saying, he just moves right on. Or what about the people for whom that Tower of Siloam, the 19 people who were all of a sudden killed when it fell on them tragically, were they worse people than others? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will perish just as they did. It really makes no sense the way in which Jesus responds to their concern about these Galileans. And for most of us, if we hear somebody like a Bill say something like that, we just pat him on the shoulder and we just have a move on and think, well, he's just kind of a strange person. But when it's Jesus who makes these very odd comments, we are wise to begin to wonder whether or not it is as off the wall as we might have first imagined or whether or not what is actually happening is Jesus is speaking a deeper truth than what perhaps even those who were gathered could have understood. You see, the likelihood is this, is that the reason why Jesus said this about the Galileans, the reason why Jesus said, you think that they're worse sinners than you, is because of this reality that even though they may not have given voice to this, that deep down, whether they were even aware of it or not, this was one of the questions that they were wrestling with. And the reason why it is that Jesus all of a sudden brought over this next tragedy about the Tower of Siloam is because whether they had even been thinking about it still or not, at the end of the day, what he realizes is that it is very likely that when that tragedy occurred, that they were wrestling with why exactly it would have happened to them rather than to those who still lived in the crowd. Because, you see, here is what many of us do when tragedy occurs, whether intentional or unintentional, is that we and they are faced with just about as uncomfortable of an issue as we could ever 
imagine. And that is the stark fragility of life and the awareness that we are not in control. And at the end of the day, those who are willing to dig deep enough into who they are and how they live and what questions they are asking will find that understanding that we are not in control is almost something too difficult for us to actually handle. You know, I shared this uh, just within the last year. I was trying to be honest with you all. Uh, I, I try that uh, a lot. And, um, and I, was, I was thankful that some of you came up afterwards and said, yeah, you know what, we do that as well. And, and what I shared with you, if you were here, is the fact that, you know, um, whenever I hear about someone and they come and, you know, or I hear about somebody out in the community uh, who has lung cancer, especially if they're my age, my first question almost always internally is, I wonder if they smoked, right? Or when I hear about somebody who has some kind of liver disease, you know, and is not doing well, I wonder to myself, well, I wonder, I wonder if they maybe, maybe they drank a lot or, or, or someone, especially if they're my age again on this and, and they have a heart attack, I think to myself, well, maybe, maybe they didn't eat real well or, 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 or maybe they didn't exercise very much. And I, I wonder those things because you know what I'm doing, of course, and I know at least some of you are doing the same thing is that you are also wondering, well, I wonder what the likelihood is that this will happen to me, you see? Because if we can say to ourselves, oh, well, they smoked and they, you know, they, they, they probably ate too much and, and they probably drank too much. Well, I don't feel like I do, you know, those things, at least not too badly. Then I think all of a sudden I am, I'm safe. And I know this because when I hear that they didn't smoke or that they just got done running an Ironman or, or, or one of those things, all of a sudden, I am in a remarkably uncomfortable position. And all of a sudden, I am incredibly familiar with just how vulnerable I am. I love this week, I was reading some Barbara Brown Taylor, and she has a great take, it seems to me, on this particular passage. And she says this, she says, calamity strikes and we wonder what we did wrong. We scrutinize our behavior, our relationships, our diets, our beliefs. We hunt for some cause to explain the effect in hopes that we can stop causing it. And what this tells us is that we are less interested in truth than in consequences. What we crave, I love this, above all, is control over the chaos of our lives. What we crave above all is control over the chaos of our lives. There are some things that we can certainly do to help us remain safe. Don't run with scissors. Right? We learned this at a young age. Right? Don't drive erratically. Don't eat too many French fries. We, we know there are some things that certainly we can do. But at the end of the day... Here is the radical truth. There is nothing that you can do to guarantee your safety or that you will not meet your maker by the end of this day. The good news of this passage is this. The good news is, is that Jesus seems to be saying here, look, look, God is not, you know, God did not have that tower fall down on these people. He did not tell Pilate to do this. This is not because they did things that were bad, that they were any more sinful than any of the rest of us. 
But at the exact same time, he does not deflect and say, oh, you guys aren't really fragile. You're going you're gonna to live to the ripe old age of 90. He makes them, he allows them to simply stay in this incredibly vulnerable space. We crave control over the chaos of our lives. And there is nothing like tragedy to others or to ourselves that exposes the impossibility of those cravings ever being which means that in the midst of tragedies, either those going on across the globe or those that happen to us personally, we all have choice. We can try to come up with reasons why it happened to them and why it certainly couldn't happen to us. We can, as many of us do, if something happens to us, negatively begin to try to run through, what are all the bad things that I did? What are all the, the things, the mistakes I made that led to this? What, what can I do? We can fixate on those things as I know people do because I have been in conversations with those who have done that. Or we can decide to allow this to be what Barbara Brown Taylor again calls a holy space which is that rather than doing either of those things, we can use that moment of fragility and vulnerability to begin to examine our lives. See, this is what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't just say, oh, don't worry about it, or yeah, man, you guys really are in trouble. Jesus says, well, in the midst of this, you should repent. You see, and what he means by that is more than just, well, we should just say we're sorry and kind of go through all the things that we did wrong. No, I, I like, and we've talked about this before, but I like the way that Dallas Willard um, kind of describes repentance. He says this, he says, repentance is to review our plans for living and base our lives on this remarkable new opportunity. What, is, what exactly is he saying? He's saying, here's what we can do. In this moment, when we are feeling most vulnerable or fragile, and when we most want to escape or figure out why we should not be feeling this fragility or this vulnerability, that we can either do that and just try to say, let's just try to get away from that, or we can use this as holy space to examine our lives and to say, what are we allowing to give us security? What foolish notions are we trying to help our ourselves or force ourselves to believe like nothing bad will ever happen. You see, if we use it as a holy space, if we have the courage to stay in that moment rather than fleeing or escaping, then those holy spaces can actually lead to life. And in allowing ourselves to stay more present in that very vulnerability, we begin to discover ourselves more clearly. I told you all um, many times now, I've talked about this, how last summer I spent um, about six weeks in Germany and how I really wanted this to be a season of vulnerability for me. I don't do vulnerability well. I don't like being vulnerable. Um, I like being in control. I know I'm, I may be the only one here, but I have a feeling I'm not. 
And so I went in there, right? And, I, and I've said to you all that, that a part of the way I was going to do that with great intentionality was, you know, I was going to keep trying to learn this language that I didn't know. And, and I was going to start every conversation, you know, with just this fact that, hey, you know what? I'm trying to learn German. Please don't speak English because that always makes me feel much safer. All of a sudden, I feel much more in control when people are speaking English. I wanted English. I wanted to stay in that moment as much as possible. It wasn't easy. It was exhausting. But when my family got in town, um, we, uh, we went over to Salzburg, Austria, and we spent a few days there, and we did, of course, the obligatory uh, Sound of Music tour, right, uh, which was great. Um, by the way, just as a quick aside, uh, someone brought this up. I thought this was fascinating. As we think about this, the song in the Sound of Music, if you know this, um, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. For somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Think about that. What, what lesson is that teaching? That's if something good happened, I must have done something good in the past, which is actually not Jesus. Okay? Anyway, so there we were. After the end of a long day, uh, we were hungry, and uh, by the end of this day, you know, I think the, uh, the children were tired of being with their parents, and the parents were tired of being with their children. And so we said, you know what, we don't want to have to go into another restaurant and like say, oh, keep saying shh, 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 all the time, so let's just, let's just go home. And so we stopped in at a grocery store really quickly, and these grocery stores were small, so it was a great excuse to tell the kids, just wait outside, mom and dad are going to go inside, and we'll get these groceries, and we'll come out. So after we got in, it was getting close to closing time, right? They close much earlier than we do. So we were like, oh, gee whiz. So we had to quickly get our groceries for our dinner. And so we did so. Uh, and then we went um, to the cash register. Now, this was a discount uh, grocer, which meant they only had one register open. And because it was closing, there was a long line that was beginning to pile up, right? And so we kind of were that halfway through, a lot of people ahead of us, a lot of people behind us. Getting to the cash register is always the most nerve-wracking part of this when you're trying to, you know, do this whole uh, different language thing. And in fact, just a few days earlier when we'd been in Berlin, uh, my girls and I had gotten yelled at for doing something wrong in the line. We have no idea even now what we did wrong. We just knew it wasn't right. And so, so I was already a little bit, of, had some anxiety because of that, but I had my cash out. I was ready to go. We were going to pay it. We were going to get out of there. It was going to be great. So we get there and the woman, um, 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 not the most friendly, but whatever. She's just, you know, going through everything's great. And then she gets to the bananas. And she looks at me with this disdain and she yells something to me in German. And I went through my Rolodex, my German English dictionary in my head. And I could not understand what she was yelling, but then she was just pointing, pointing to where I had gotten the bananas. Now, at this point, I had a huge decision to make. What do you do? Do I quickly go to English? I don't understand. In hopes that she will, decent likelihood, speak English and just tell us. Do I say, mm, kind banana. I don't even like bananas anyways. Just take them off. I don't want that. I want everything else. Who needs bananas? Or do I, and this is what I was most tempted to do, just run out? <laughs> Which would not have pleased my wife, but would have pleased me. But all of a sudden, across my head, you know, I remembered, season of vulnerability, season of vulnerability, season of vulnerability. And so I said, okay. And so I walked over to where the bananas were. 
And I looked, I mean, I looked frantically. I was pitting out, you know this, right? I was just sweating. I was like, what is it that she wants? And then I see a plastic bag and I think, I cannot imagine it's that she wants me to put the bananas in a plastic bag, but you never know. And so in a moment of desperation, I put in the plastic bag, I go back. I did not look at anyone at the ever-growing line because I knew what they were thinking because I know what I would have been thinking if I had been in that line. And so I go there and I say, (laughs) and she says, Mm, and keep saying something in German that I still don't know. And I think this is not right. And so at that point, another decision. No bananas, English, escape. Season of vulnerability, season of vulnerability, no. So I went back again and I was looking even more frantically, right? By this time, my clothes were drenched. I just had no idea. And then I see a scale. I say, oh, she was saying something like, give it, give it, give it. Weigh it. And so I weighed it. I still wasn't 100% sure. And I went back and she took it and she put it down and we rushed out and it was perfect. Now, it felt like it was about an hour. I'm sure it was about 45 seconds. But here's what I learned. What I learned is this, I learned, oh man, I had forgotten. I knew this some, but just how comfortable and secure it is when you know the language, when you know the customs, when you know what you do in a grocery store and what you don't do in a grocery store. I don't even think about it. Maybe you think about it when you get out, you know how to turn your car on. Because I said this before, I couldn't even turn the car on when I first got to Germany. I had no idea. It was this weird kind of disc thing, right? All of a sudden, right, you waste all, we, we use all this energy. We don't use it. You know, when we're here, we know everything works. You know, you go to the, you go get your bananas. It's no problem. They weigh it right there on the scale at the cash register makes sense, doesn't it? It's what Jesus would have done. All of these assumptions, right? All these things that we just know and that make us feel safe, but we don't even think about how safe it makes us feel. So I'm realizing this, and at the exact same time, when I'm also all of a sudden, you know, right after this, what I'm reflecting on is, oh my goodness, Jerry, how, how often have you been impatient with immigrants or refugees that have come here and haven't quite understood everything. And maybe I've done it with a smile on my face, but I've just been like, come on, people, this makes sense. This is just natural. And so what it allowed me to do, kind of to take this Dallas Willard, it allowed me to see, it it unveiled, it unmasked this facade I have. And it helped me to see there's a better route. So that when I'm in the line and there's somebody, especially if they seem like, oh, maybe, maybe they're from a different place and they seem confused, then maybe you just have patience. Maybe you even step in. Maybe you even help. All of a sudden, there was this better journey, this better pathway. But, and I don't do this very often. It took my sitting in that vulnerability and not simply escaping to what would have made me feel safe and secure to unmask and unveil the things in which I was putting all of my security. You see, when Jesus comes in here and he says, look, use this as this remarkable time, he is in 
He is encouraging us in those moments when you are afraid, when you are vulnerable, when there is a tragedy occurring in your home or in someone else's home that you know or across the globe and you want to quickly, in the midst of being kind and gentle and and having your heart broken, also try to figure out, well, why could this not happen to me? Maybe instead you use this moment to simply assess your own self. I love how uh, Gerhard Hughes puts this repentance. He says, when God in Christ says, repent and believe the good news, he is actually uttering an invitation, not a threat. Because in these moments of tragedy, what we get to begin to do is we begin to ask the question, how are my possessions? How are my friends? How are my good deeds? How is my children? How are my clean living? How's my diet and exercise? How's my attending worship uh, every Sunday? How is my working? How are those things giving us a sense false or a false sense of security? Because as you know, all it takes is a bad medical diagnosis or a car accident or a wayward child, or the loss of a job, or an act of terrorism, or an earthquake, any of those things to immediately open our eyes to where we have been hiding. The fragility of life is actually not something from which we should run. It is an invitation for us to examine our lives. I love the way, you know, the Germans... uh, tend to be very blunt. I love the way Martin Luther interpreted the 90th Psalm. He just says, teach us to reflect on the fact that we must die so that we become wise. This little parable, I don't have time to go into it very much right now, but this little parable about the fig tree that Jesus tells, I think it's helpful. In one way, it's remarkably helpful because Again, if you're like me, it's not easy to stay in those moments of vulnerability. But what we know is that God understands this is going to take time. It is a slow process to be able to do that. So he has this great sense of divine patience. Hey, okay, let's give him another year. Let's give this tree another year. But then there's also this incredible lesson about manure that I love so much. So our good friend, I'm just going to start calling him our good friend now because I use him so much. Eugene Peterson says this about manure. He says, manure is not a quick fix. It has no immediate results. It's going to take a long time to see if it makes any difference. If it's results that we are after, chopping down a tree is just the thing. We clear the ground and make it ready for a fresh start. We love beginnings, birthing a baby, christening a ship, the first day on a new job, starting a war. But spreading manure carries none of that exhilaration. It is not dramatic work, not glamorous work, not work that gets anyone's admiring attention. Manure is a slow solution. Still, when it comes to doing something about what is wrong in the world, Jesus is best known for his fondness for the minute, the invisible, the quiet, the slow yeast, salt, seeds, light, and manure. So the challenge in front of us, it seems to me, I just heard about another train accident in Pakistan, is that no matter where we are, we will hear of tragedies 
and tragedies will find us. But slowly but surely, like spreading manure, the opportunity, the holy space that we have is to see those moments and rather than fleeing from that vulnerability or trying to discern every possible reason why this could have happened and why it won't happen to me, is to use it instead to understand once again just how fragile life is and to say, in what ways am I trying to find security in anything beyond Christ? Here's the good news. It doesn't mean that we can never have possessions, that we shouldn't you know, have children, that we shouldn't work hard, that we should never uh, try to eat healthy. But what it means is that those things should never be asked to do what they cannot do, which is to promise us any kind of true life. We can enjoy them without having to possess them or without needing them to do what they were never called to do. So my hope and prayer, sisters and brothers, is that as we go through this life and the reality of this world, that rather than hiding from it, that we will allow those things to be opportunities and holy spaces to examine ourselves, to repent, and to live a newer, deeper life. Steady, stable, plodding, manure-like. But this is the gift of Jesus Christ. May it be so. Amen.